It's Pride Month, and today we're bringing you a way to honor the LGBTQ plus community with the return of the Writers' Room, our series where we talk to writers about their craft. We asked you for your favorite LGBTQ plus authors. Janata Petras-Nash wrote this book called The Stars and the Blackness Between Them. Although it's a YA novel, it also is just so good, and the words and descriptions are so lush that even adult readers are going to love it. I recommend it to everybody. I wanted to tell about April Daniels, who wrote an LGBT superhero novel called Dreadnought and its sequel, Sovereign, about a trans superhero. It was something I really enjoyed that changed a lot about how I saw myself. There are two LGBT authors and books. The first one is Stranger at the Gate with Mel White and Boy Erased by Gerard Conley. I'm a survivor of 10 years of conversion therapy and fundamental ideas, and both these books helped me to heal from that pain and trauma and to move forward as my authentic self. Thanks to Lindsay in Minnesota and Lily and Clinton from Missouri for those messages. The canon of queer literature has evolved as LGBTQ folks gain more visibility in mainstream culture. According to industry tracker NPD Bookscan, LGBTQ plus fiction book sales reached almost 5 million copies last year, doubling sales from 2021. But access to these kinds of stories is in jeopardy. More than 30 states have introduced anti-LGBTQ plus legislation this year. Some of that legislation includes the so-called Don't Say Gay Bill that passed in Florida this March. That law bans the discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity in classrooms, including books that touch on those topics. More than a dozen states have introduced similar bills. So what's next for the representation of queer stories and authors? And how is telling those stories changed along with the politics around LGBTQ plus rights? We'll get into all that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Fox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us is poet Diana Getch. Her new memoir is This Body I Wore. Diana, welcome. Hi, Jen. Thank you. Also with us is Brian Washington, the author of the best-selling novel Memorial and the short story collection Lot. Brian, welcome back. Hey there. Thanks so much for having me. And Kristen Arnett's most recent book is With Teeth, which came out last summer. She's also the author of the best-selling debut novel Mostly Dead Things. Kristen, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Now, Brian, you grew up in Houston. Who were the writers and stories you resonated with? It's kind of a circuitous question for me because I wasn't the biggest reader growing up. But when I did find myself leaning into queer literature, it was folks like Jacqueline Woodson and Samantha Irby and the early work of Ocean Vuong and Andrea Lawler, just folks who were taking their own narratives from their own very specific vantage points, very specific through lines and queering them and queering them in whatever regard they felt was necessary for the narrative, not in a way where it felt as if though their stories were solely leaning on trauma or solely leaning on identity, if they didn't want to do that. And if they did, they chose to do that. But I think 
the choice of it was something that was super captivating mm-hmm. for me in my early forays into queer literature. Now, Kristen, you grew up in Florida. How much access did you have to queer authors and stories when you were growing up? Oh, that's a good question because the answer is zero uh, percent. Unless I was being very sneaky and trying to hide things, I grew up in a very, um, aside from being in Florida, I grew up in a very evangelical um, Southern Baptist family that kept a very tight leash on what they allowed me to have access to and read. So quite often it was me trying to sneak and find literature or figure out what things were or even figure out what queerness was. So like truly the first time I was even able to figure out something was gay. I didn't even realize that it was gay. I was just like, oh, this feels like me. Mm. And then this realization, it was like myself and and the book were both queer, but like not having an understanding of what that actually meant. Do you remember what that book was? It was Dorothy Allison's Bastard Out of Carolina. Um, it was the first time I read a book where I was like, this, I see myself in here. And also the kind of writing I wanted to do, um, where it was like, so like place was so inextricably linked with character. Um, that's like South Carolina in that book. But I was like, Florida is so embedded in me and I'm so queer. Um, and I don't really understand what that means, but I know they're like inextricable. Like they, they're really tangled up together. I mean, what, what did it feel like to have that moment when you, when you recognized yourself in the book? It was a kind of shock to the system, I would say. It was this moment of, of kind of feeling jolted um, because so so often I feel like I was trying to like see myself in things. Like I was definitely a, a kid who read like Babysitter's Club books and tried to see myself in there. And I was like, I don't necessarily see myself in here totally, uh, but I really wanted to. And that was like such a shock to the system. I remember being like, oh, this person is like different in a way that I find like deeply relatable. And I understand that it's a kind of difference that even she doesn't like, or she doesn't fully understand as a child. And it was, it was very shocking, I would say, but it was something that felt, it stayed with me forever. Like I still think of that book all the time when I think about like what queer writing means to me or when I need to like get back or think to myself, like what I want my own writing to do. Now, Diana, you're a lifelong New Yorker and a lifelong reader. When did you start finding queer authors? Uh, For me, it, it, wasn't until late, although now that I say that, my first, my first love as a kid was James Baldwin, so here we, are, here we are with a queer author. But I was mostly reading black writers growing up, the great black writers of the mid-20th century, um, not even wondering why I was identifying so strongly with those books. I just loved it. And there's something that I was connecting with that I, I, I didn't know why. Um, it was something about being different. I didn't think I was black, but those were the writers I loved. Well, the late writer Bell Hooks once defined queer this way, quote, not being about who you're having sex with, but about the self that is at odds with everything around it. Brian, what about you? How do you think about or define queerness? I think for me, it can feel like a position of being outside, a position of being just beyond the scope of what may feel comprehensible or what may feel dominant. But I think that what's most interesting to me is that there's many different definitions for queerness and as many different approaches for queerness as there are queer folks. And that is just really exciting on its face, sure. But thinking of how that can 
take place and the forms that it can take as far as like narrative is concerned, it can really just open up the field for just like our general understanding of like, okay, like what is a gay novel? What is a lesbian novel? What's a bi novel? What is a novel that is centering trans and non-binary folks and not having like a concrete definition for any of those things, because there are so many different narratives that are being told so many different narratives that are being lived so many different narratives that haven't been told yet, but are on the way. So I, I think that queerness for me is also just like a just a huge expansiveness mm-hmm. right like an, an an interest in the unknown or like a yearning for the unknown and the possibility that's inherent inside of that uh, Brian it's not uncommon for fiction writers to infuse some part of their their personal experiences into their novels as you started writing how much of your experience did you want to include in your characters and stories that's a really great question I think for me I knew from the outset that I wasn't particularly interested in having like a one-to-one correlation between my own immediate experience or experiences and what I put on the page. But I also knew from the outset that I was really only interested in writing narratives that were centering queerness and that were centering the queerness of its characters, but not only their queerness, but the ways in which that queerness interacted with every facet of their lives. Like I wanted to write love stories in which the characters were queer, but also they had to go to work and deal with that. And also they had to deal with their families and also they had to eat and have sex and go into debt and maybe get out of debt and come to conclusions and perhaps not find the answers for any of these things. So writing narratives that felt as close to life as it was being lived, whether it was my own experiences, whether it was the experiences of my friends or the experiences of the communities that I'm a part of or parallel to always just felt like something that I wanted to reach toward, even if I didn't necessarily have the language for it upon my initial forays. But it was upon reading, you know, folks who were doing that work and doing it just so proficiently and so thoughtfully and doing it without coming to any concrete conclusions that really acted as a foundation for me and really spurred me on. Kristen, what about for you? I think, uh, well, like the daily lived experiences is something I I think about a lot in in fiction, but mostly I would say for myself, I, I do consider myself to be a Florida writer and I consider myself to be a queer Florida writer. So in the most me I find in the books that I write is the Florida that I'm trying to write in there. And since I'm queer, it's queer Florida. I was like, how, do, how does a character interact with the space? How do those bodies move through space? How do those bodies touch each other inside the space of Florida? Um, it's been a thoughtful thing to try and think about, like as writers, we write the things that we want to see. Uh, I think a lot of the time, you know, uh, writers are voracious readers as well. So we're constantly like devouring books and, and looking for ourselves in there, but also looking for different perspectives or different like versions of ourselves in those pages. So I guess when I'm writing, it's like, that's not me in there, but maybe it's like an alternate dimension version of, of of a part of Kristen, like a facet, like a refracted light of like another queer version of myself. I think that's, an interesting way to think about like just trying to see myself in my own writing, but also seeing myself in other people's writing, other people's queer writing as well. Uh, Diana, you came out as a trans woman later in life and you just published a a memoir a couple of weeks ago. So you you stepped away from, from poetry to write this memoir. How, what was that transition like for you as, as a writer to move from one form to another? 
Um, well, I've been writing prose, uh, you know, more journalistic prose and columns and things like that. Um, but, you know, the big transition was the fact that I could finally be out and write a memoir. And, you know, to have a career as a writer in the closet, you sort of can't do long prose. At least I couldn't because I couldn't be honest for that long. And I didn't, I didn't know how to make myself available or that part of myself available to a reader in a poem. So I wrote about other things. And, um, you know, I had what I called the everybody test. I wanted to write poetry that had power for everybody. Um, and then, you know, things that might be trans or queer kind of was through a filter. Um, and then now, uh, you know, I could, I could write an everybody memoir now because things are different and I'm out. I think being out makes the, makes the difference. Kristen, how have you seen the representation of LGBTQ plus authors in, in publishing evolve over the last few years? It's been, well, it's a, a, a genuine joy. I, I mean, I think as like LGBTQ people, like it's going to be a joyful experience to see more and more and to see just not one type of voice represented. I think that there's such a, it's a, a delightful feeling to be like, oh, you know, to have publishers not do that thing where they're like, well, we had our one gay book come out this year. So that's it. Like just the one like representative of everybody kind of taking up that space, but to see like different narratives of different kinds of things, right. Or it's like different types of voices from different places, different, just different. Uh, I, I, and it's been kind of an explosion just like within like every single year to see like one book beget like five more books beget like 20 more books like of different kinds of stories and stories that are like willing to be messy and not necessarily like take a narrative on coming out or you know trauma necessarily but like more joyful stories I would say Casey McQuiston is a great example of this like writing like contemporary like very queer romances that are continually on the bestsellers list it shows there's like such a market and such a place for queer joy that's like really exciting to see. Brian where have you seen the biggest changes in the types of stories you see being told say from just 10 years ago? I completely agree with Kristen in that regard and that there's just more you know, and that more is begetting more. And it exists in line with this idea that, you know, at the end of the day, like publishing is an industry, it's a business. It always works in its own favor or what it deems or thinks will be ultimately profitable. But simultaneously, I mean, even in the past week to say nothing like of the past few years to have books like Boys Come First by Aaron Foley or Nuclear Family by Joseph Hahn in line with books like The Verifiers by Jane Peck or like Love in the Big City by like Sangyong Park like to have each of these narratives like a mystery like a rom-com like a short story collection like a novel that enters many different contours be in the same conversation as far as queer literature is concerned while simultaneously being very much themselves is just deeply, deeply gratifying. And I think that it creates more comps. It creates more opportunities for other authors to see work that is very much itself and still has a place and a hold in the market. It shows publishers that not only are these queer books selling, not only is there an audience for them, but as they continue to publish more, they will continue to sell more books, which would seem, you know, self-evident, but, you know, overall majority of the time is not. Uh, just, Just having the chance to see the ways in which 
a conversation around queer literature is no longer a conversation that's held between like three or four or five or six folks so much as one that spans regions, that spans countries, that still centers queerness while still centering very individual components that are important to each of these authors. It's just something that I don't know that that I can't say that we haven't seen it in the last decade because these are narratives that have always been there. You know, they've, they've always been lived. They've always been experienced. But to see them at a larger scale or being given visibility at a larger scale or maybe more aptly them taking visibility at a larger scale is just, just so reassuring and just so encouraging. J. Michael Photo tweets, I'm a cisgender 60-something male who got so much gender understanding from Ursula K. Le Guin's novel The Dispossessed, where gender-fluid gender was a fact of life. Wonderful examination of gendered perspectives. Terrence emails, as a gay black man, I often felt invisible. The works of Elin Harris, Stephen R. Delaney, James Earl Hardy, Richard Bruce Nugent, and James Baldwin made me realize I was not the only one and that my life is viable and that I deserve to be seen, heard, and loved for who I am. Diana, when you think about trans stories, what kinds of stories do you think are available now that represent the community and its experiences? And and what would you like to see more of? Well, you know, as, as Kristen and Brian were pointing out, there is an explosion in this part of the queer rainbow as well. Um, two days ago, we saw the release of the re-release of Nevada by Imogen Binney, which has been just a cult classic among trans people. And now it's out with FSG and there's been articles in the Paris Review and it's an amazing book. And um, Detransition Baby by Tori Peters came out last year uh, to popular acclaim. And it's a great novel that's now in paperback called Summer Fun uh, by Jean Thornton. And, you know, in all of these pieces, one way or another, we see exactly what Kristen was talking about. Um, trans people living ordinary lives with, um, you know, all of their particular um, obstacles put next to just the business of daily life, like any ordinary person. And this power, and it also cloud seeds the whole industry. Uh, as Brian was pointing out, it just makes space for all kinds of narratives in this part of the rainbow. Well, I want to hear a clip of you reading from your latest novel, Brian. This is from Memorial. Growing up, my sister was the disciplinarian. Lydia also taught me how to kiss. She actually brought over a girl from her school. They talked in her bedroom, sipping gin from my parents' liquor cabinet, until my sister called me up from downstairs. The girl had dark hair and mermaid earrings. She touched my forearm, slowly, and when I jumped... She frowned. She asked if I didn't want to. I told her I did. Then I turned to Lydia, who looked deeply disappointed. She asked if I needed her to demonstrate, and her friend made a face. But I told her that wasn't necessary, for real. I was good. Years later, Lydia reminded me of all that. And then I came out, which took the pressure off her for a while. Now, Brian, Vanity Fair said you're, quote, writing the next generation of queer love story, end quote. I'm curious what that means for you to, to write the next generation of these stories. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> it's really generous of Vanity Fair. <laughs> I think that insofar as, you know, my interest in love stories is concerned, like, I'm, I'm always fascinated in narratives in which the love is a given, right? In which 
the love is understood and apparent from the outset and the challenge of the narrative and the challenge of the story perhaps is putting language around that love or putting action around that love, particularly thinking of like queer narratives. What's really fascinating to me is exploring the many different forms that care can take, particularly for like younger queer folks who perhaps may not have had concrete models for what a queer relationship looks like in your 20s, in your 30s, in your 40s, in older age characters who are actively having to construct who they would like to be in real time and failing and giving them the grace to fail, right? Allowing them to fail, which I think is a privilege that so many marginalized queer folks just like don't have in actual life, right? The opportunity to make a mistake or what could be perceived as a mistake and come back from it to rebound from it if they so choose. Writing narratives in which characters are constantly grasping at love and constantly grasping at many different forms and kinds of love, not even necessarily explicitly romantic love between one partner, right? Like what does romantic love look like in an open relationship? What does romantic look, love look like within found family or platonic love within found family or an assembly of folks who are just coming together to form their own sense of like what community looks like? These are questions that are really fascinating with me and really stay with me because there's no concrete answer. And because there's no concrete answer, as Kristen was noting, as Diana has noted, I mean, that creates a narrative opportunity that's just rife for many different tangents, right? Like you can take the story anywhere you would like to because there are as many different destinations as there are folks that are inhabiting these narratives. We'll be back with more in just a moment. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Let's get back to the conversation. Uh, Diana, you've been writing poetry for most of your career, and I understand you have a poem that you'd like to read for us about your experience called Backflip. Thank you. Yeah, uh, this poem uh, was written long before coming out, and uh, I was just following an idea, and I'll read you an excerpt from it. Backflip. I could probably do a backflip right now. For I have maintained bodily flexibility through my 30s and into my 40s. Plus, I'm generally good at committing to things, which I'm guessing would be a key to effective backflipping. I see it as no harder than the leap your average television detective makes from one rooftop to another, which only seems like a big deal because it's high up. Plus, they're wearing suits and ties, the pursuit of criminals being a formal occasion. Anyhow... I think I could cover that, no problemo. Not only me, but you too, and that's my point. A lot of us could do a backflip. We just don't know it. We have no idea what we're capable of. And this is how the world keeps us in check. Everyone, except for the stuntmen and the ones who run off and join the circus or tear up their passports and go native or change their sex and become lounge singers or stand their ground in front of a tank. If I do this backflip, there's no telling what I'll do next. Or maybe I'll keep it a secret and remain an ordinary civilian, humble and quiet as I've been, though with the knowledge of what I'm capable of buzzing inside me. 
Reflect on that poem for me, Diana. Well, you know, I, I read this poem at the first reading I did after coming out. It was actually an encore. I've never did an encore at a poetry reading, but I guess it went over well. And while I was reading it, I just said, holy crap, this is a poem about being trans. Mm. <laughs> I didn't know it. I was just following this idea of a backflip. And of course, I use this coarse word, you know, change their sex. But I throw this trans um, image in between, you know, all of these other things, almost to bury it or to disguise it. And, and I think, you know, that's what I did for myself. I, you know, I just thought I was this cross-dresser you know, and didn't know how to write about anything about this. And here I was, you know, writing about being trans through a filter long before I knew it. What does that make you think about how you use writing as a processing tool for yourself? Um, well, you know, the processing happens beneath your awareness, you know, I, I can only speak for my process as a poet. I mean, you're kind of walking in the dark and you want to forget yourself and you just throw yourself into the poem and you follow this idea or this image and, you know, what you get to is this bigger space or a deeper self that's always a shock. Um, you know, so when, when Pound says, you know, the poet is the antenna of the race, you could also be the antenna of your future or you know, the, the part of yourself that you, you kind of don't know. It, it's not like a conscious, you don't really engineer your own journey as a poet. It's not conscious. And yet there's this amazing journey. I'd love to hear from, from you, Kristen, and, and Brian as well on this. Are, are there times when you go back and you read something you've written and said, oh, I... <laughs> I didn't realize I was writing about this thing until I, I, I read it again, you know, months or years later. Kristen? Oh, my God. Like Maybe every time I write something. Um, if it's doing what I want it to do, which is to um, kind of do an excavation, um, I... First of all, I think as a person, just as a human being, like I never know, I know what I really think about anything. And I think if I ever really did think I really, really thought or understood myself or anything or the world, that's probably when I'll be dead. Um, it's just, uh, I think it's, it's exciting to approach work with this kind of way where it's like, it's a constant source of discovery. And that's, that's what is exciting to me about work, where it's like, I'm going to discover something new, and I'm going to uncover something here. And it's definitely going to be something that I wasn't expecting, or that will surprise me, right? Or like, just a thing where it's like, oh, that's who I was at this time. It's, it's interesting always to go back and read work, I think, as writers, because we're like, oh, who wrote that? Oh, it was me. Oh, that was that was me. But it is this feeling too of like, oh, I can see where I am now, what I was trying to get at there. And I can see the process, the layering of questions it took to get to where I am in the question process now. Um, it's never boring, which I think is what makes the work so important. Well, last October, a Republican state representative in Texas targeted 850 books for review, and it raised questions about if he wanted them to be banned. Uh, breakdown from Book Riot found that two-thirds of those books included LGBTQ storylines. We covered this on another show back in November. And here's a clip from Maya Kobabe. Maya's book, Gender Queer, a memoir, is in the top 10 list of most challenged books for banning. That's according to the American Library Association. A book being banned does not hurt the book 
or the author, it really only hurts the readers. My book is doing great. It is selling more than ever. It's really like the people who are being you know, hurt by this situation is people who, like specifically young people who have less access to books about topics that they might desperately need information on. And then also teens who are hearing really negative things about topics that might be really close to their identity. Diana, what's your response to what Maya said there? Yeah, well, that was a great point she made about how it doesn't hurt the author, but it does hurt uh, readers. I mean, if Tennessee banned, you know, this body I wore, this memoir, um, it'd be great for sales, be horrible for queer people in Tennessee, or at least, you know, one of the things they don't have access to. Um, you know, unless you see it on the outside, it's just really hard to see on the inside as a kid. And so, you know, these books are just vital. They were to me growing up, even though they weren't trans books, I was getting so much, um, you know, out of queer books. Kristen, what role do you think writers have in, in moments like this? Um, I think it's it's a moment where it feels very scary. I mean, I can only speak for myself um, because it feels fraught with importance. It feels so, like, as much as it feels important for me, it feels so important to have this openness, have a dialogue and conversation and communication. I think growing up um, closeted and queer in Florida and feeling very alone and just feeling like I had no access to any kind of communication. I think Diana and Brian said this very beautifully, um, and I'm going to not say it as beautifully, <laughs> um, but it's it just, there's a heaviness that comes with it as a kind of feeling of defeat. And it feels, I see myself as a young teenager struggling and just wanting connection and wanting communication and wanting to feel seen and accepted and most of all, just loved. Like a feeling of of love and, and knowing that I'm loved and that I'm seen and that I'm it's okay for me to be who I am as a person. So writing these kinds of stories feels so like so important that it feels like terrifying. Um, and that, that, you know, I want, I want to be able to write the kind of stories that make myself feel seen, but that make pe- other people feel seen as well. I would love to hear from each of you, either authors you're, you're really excited about right now, or what do you say to someone who, who's thinking about starting to write in this space? Uh, Diana, I'll come to you first. You know, what I'd say to someone starting to write in this space is just blow open the space. Um, you know, really, you're a citizen of the universe. And, uh, you know, the the further we go into our idiosyncrasy, and this is anyone, but especially queer writers, the further we go into our idiosyncrasies and what makes us unique, uh, the more um, the more we are everyone. It's a real great paradox. You know, the more specific we get about truth and what we see, the more universal the writing becomes. So I would just say, have confidence and, um, you know, find your inspiration. Find not just the great writers, but your great writers, no matter who they are, and find out who taught them and find out their great writers. Um it's it's just a beautiful world to, to, to just be an artist and, you know, yeah. have that joy. Brian, really quickly from you. I would just parrot everything Diana said. I mean, just finding 
who you feel is in conversation with your concerns, with your obsessions, whatever they may be, however scary that might feel, is just the one thing I could encourage. Because if you find value in it, if you have love for it, then that love will appear on the page. And just thinking of works recently that like I've just so enjoyed, like I'm Not Hungry But I Could Eat by Christopher Gonzalez or Stone Fruit by Lee Lai, just works that are just very much themselves, very much concerned with the lives and the individual revolutions of their characters and allowing the gravity of their queerness to exist inside of them. But I'd also encourage really quickly involved, just really quickly getting involved with mutual aid networks, getting involved with extra legal efforts just in your community that are working to ensure the safety of marginalized folks, queer folks uh, in your immediate vicinity, because that's how we take care of each other. And that's how we continue to build community. That's Brian Washington, author of the short story collection Lot. His most recent novel, Memorial, is being adapted to a TV series. Also with us, Kristen Arnett, who wrote the novels With Teeth and Mostly Dead Things, and Diana Getch, a poet and author of the new memoir, This Body I Wore. Thanks to you all. Today's producers were June Leffler and Sophia Alvarez-Boyd. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.